Welcome to Life Lessons, a ministry of Metro Believers Church featuring Pastor Glenn Smith. We pray that you will be encouraged by today's teaching. And now, Pastor Glenn. And welcome to part four of the story. How many um, of you read the chapter before you came here this morning? If you did, that's awesome. Thanks for following along in the story. We're in a um, 31-week journey through the story. It's a, a bridge chronological study of the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. If you are visiting with us for the first time and would like to join us on this journey, we still have books available. They're $5 each, and you can get them in the back after the service. Want to welcome the live stream audience this morning. Thanks for joining us. Let's give them a hand this morning as they join us in our story series. How many have been blessed um, over the last few weeks to hear from different members of our own congregation of God, God's work in their lives, and them coming to Christ and what Christ has done in their lives? Isn't that been awesome? Well, I want to ask um, Robin McCarthy. She's going to come this morning and share her story. So let's make Robin welcome this morning. married to Dan right there and we have three sons ages 31 28 and 26 uh, two of the three are married and we have three precious grandchildren and I want to tell you about how after having a relationship with Christ for 32 years I am convinced that he is a good good father Amen. Um, have all my life circumstances been great no um, my father passed away at 58 Actually, my sister before that when she was 26. And, uh, but I can still say today that he is good. I've learned to live in the upper story. And here's how that all came about. And to me, the upper story, me, story means that I've learned to live um, with an eternal perspective. I grew up in Los Angeles. And uh, my three sons leave it to Beaver kind of family. <laughs> we went to church every Sunday and youth group on Wednesday nights. When I was in junior high, I accepted Jesus as my savior. However, I didn't grow in my faith. In my high school, but especially my college years, I rebelled against everything I was ever taught. I stopped going to church and did what was right in my own eyes. I was in charge, or you could say I was in control. After college, I met Dan and fell in love and proposed. Yes, I proposed. <laughs> I was in charge. I quickly concluded that I wanted a marriage that would last a lifetime. I saw that both of our parents had 25 plus year marriages. They were different religions, but the commonality was God. So I started to search for the truth. And God in his goodness, he had never left me. He was drawing me. I studied with Jehovah's Witness neighbor for about one year, and as I prayed, God put in my heart it wasn't the truth. I had friends that were Mormon. They gave me the Book of Mormon. But again, God put in my heart that I hadn't even read the whole Bible, so I shelved the Book of Mormon. Then we looked in the yellow pages. I don't know if anybody knows what the yellow pages of the phone book are, but back then, that's what we had. Um, for non-denominational churches, 
And uh, Dan was only semi-interested in all of this. But ultimately, we ended up at an evangelical church. In that first Sunday, the pastor spoke about what was number one in your life, your career, money, your friends. Well, the pastor said, God wants to be number one. I realized that I had put my marriage in first place and God in second, and that if I wanted a lifelong marriage, <clears throat> I needed to allow God to be number one. And that is the day in 1986 that I gave up control um, of my life and asked Jesus Christ not only to be my savior, but also to be Lord of my life. I've always pictured it as giving out, giving, um, as me getting out of the driver's seat of my life and allowing Jesus to drive. And that was the only the beginning of the driving lessons. Um, I remember kind of going through a time where I was a backseat driver a bit. But um, anyway, with the help of Jesus, I chose to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, to letting go of controlling the size of our family. Choosing to have other Christians live with us, even when it caused me to want to run away. Moving to Madison, Wisconsin, when I didn't even know where it was, and away from all of our family. I could go on and on. Through many life situations, I continue to learn to allow God to be the king of my life. Through fear and loneliness and despair, God has helped me believe his promises, even when I didn't feel like it. To live in the upper story, allowing him to drive. Trusting God for this verse that he gave me early on in my walk with him. It's Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. I want to thank Robin for sharing her story. And um, somehow what she just shared is going to align with the message this morning. And we didn't even plan it or we'll awesome how what she just shared is going to align with the message this morning. And we didn't even plan it or work on it together. So thank you again, Robin. Opening your Bibles to chapter, I mean to Exodus chapter 2. And then in your storybook, we're going to be in chapter 4. If you want to follow along in the verses there, it's on page 44 in the second paragraph. I'm going to have the ushers come at this time. Um, they have the handouts with the notes that you can follow along with the message. If you need a writing utensil, please raise your hand as well. And then each, each of the movements that we've been talking about, we're in the second movement, and we have corresponding bookmarks. Um, they have an extra bookmark, too, if you would like those. Um, you can raise your hand, and Tracy will get you one of those. It's really cool to follow along inside your story books. So chapter 4 of the story, or Exodus chapter 2, and we're going to look at these things. Now, there are four events that are covered in this week's reading. Number one is covered Moses' birth. Number two, God sending the plagues on Egypt. Number three, Israel leaving Egypt. And lastly, um, records the Israelites' wilderness wanderings. Now, there's no way that in 30 minutes on a Sunday morning in a message that I could cover each of these different themes that are recorded here in, in this reading. And I'm not even going to try. And everyone said, amen. <laughs> <laughs> I 
So what I want to do this morning is I want to focus on the first one alone, Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 15, talking about the birth of Moses. I've entitled this morning's message, Born at the Right Time. Born at the Right Time. You talk to most younger kids, and you will quickly discover that they're dissatisfied with their age. Because you talk to them, and they want to be a different age, don't they? I remember this past fall moving to our new house over in Verona. It's a different neighborhood, getting to know different neighbors. And the next door neighbor, she's very outgoing, um, the, the little daughter. And she came over and she said, hi, my name is Nora. What's yours? And I shared my name with her. And I said, Nora, how old, you are? How old are you? And she responded, I'm, I'm four, but I'm going to be five. You know, I'm, I'm four, but I'm going to be five. Now, you would um, never hear a 39-year-old woman say, I'm 39, but I'm going to be 40. Just a, a plug here. Don't ever ask a woman her age. <laughs> don't, don't do it. But they're never going to say, I'm 39, but I'm going to be 40, because somewhere along the line, it changes for us. So maybe there's a time, been a time in your life when you wished it, you were born at a different time, or you were born at a different place, but if you were born any other time than and any other place than where you were, you wouldn't be the person that you are right now, amen? You were born according to God's timing at just the right time in the right place for a specific purpose. Just the right time in the right place for a specific purpose. Now, as we read in Exodus chapter 2, Moses was born at a difficult time. He was born at a dangerous time. But as we look at his life story, we discover that he was born at exactly the right time. So over there in Exodus chapter 2 or page 44 in your storybook, let's look at verse 1. In verse 1 it says, about this time a man and woman from the tribe of Levi got married. Now, I paused after I read that first verse when I was researching for this message, and I got to that part that said, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi. Now, it'd be easy just to look at that verse as the introductory sentence and just skip it over, but I went back and I looked at what did it mean to come from the tribe of Levi? Well, it meant a lot. It means that this man and this woman came from a godly heritage. The Levites were the ones who God had delegated later the priestly duties in the temple. So it says a lot about their background and it's important to note. Then it goes on in verse two and it says, the woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. The baby's sister then stood at a di distance watching to see what would happen to him. Soon, Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river and her attendants walked along the river bank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to go get it for her. 
When the princess opened it, she saw the baby, the little boy, was crying. And she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me. The princess told the baby's mother, I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Verse 10 says, Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. The name Moses means to draw out. So we look at this story of Moses and the story of his birth and the way that he was adopted into Pharaoh's household and the way God provided for him. And the whole thing, for a lot of us who have grown up in the church, it's familiar. But this morning, as we look at it, I want, you, I want to challenge you to think not about the human side of the story, like Robin mentioned, the lower story, but I want you to think about the upper story, the divine side of the story, and how God saw this from his perspective. I want you to think not about Pharaoh's daughter, what she did or what she didn't do, or what Moses' mother did, or what his sister Miriam did, although we'll talk about all those things, but I want you to look at beyond what people were doing to see what, what, what God was doing here. And I want you to think about how you can apply each of these principles to your own life. Now the first principle that I find in this passage is this, God made you for a reason. God made you and I for a reason. That's something I believe that God wants to remind each of us this morning, that we're not an accident, we're not a fluke, that you and I were made for a reason, and we were made for a purpose. God made us for a purpose. Now, as we just read about the events preceding Moses' birth, we may be tempted to say, well, that was a terrible time to have a baby, to have a child, or for a child to be born. I mean, think about the circumstances surrounding the, his birth. If we look back at Exodus chapter 1, if you want to turn there in your Bible, or it'll be up here on the screen, verse 8, it says, eventually a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. See, last week we, we looked at the story of the life of, of Joseph in chapter 3 of the story or toward the end of Genesis. And we see how Joseph was sold into slavery and how he spent time at Potiphar's house and then in the prison and, and um, interpreted one of um, Pharaoh's dreams and then ended up becoming what? The second in command in all of Egypt. And he was reunited back with his brothers, with his family, and he actually became kind of a hero to all the Egyptians. Everybody loved him. But it says here in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, but then a new king arose in Egypt who didn't know Joseph, didn't know the hero that he was. He didn't know how Joseph had rescued the whole nation from famine. And the Bible says that this king, this pharaoh, who was the political and religious leader of that day, said to his people in Exodus chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, look, 
the people of Israel out, now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if all war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramesses as supply centers for the king. So the Bible tells us that the people of Israel were multiplying greatly. And Pharaoh was worried and concerned that they would outnumber him, that there would be this insurrection, that they would rise up against his authority and overpower him. And he wanted to do everything that he could do in his power to crush them. Which leads us to Exodus chapter 1, verse 16. So he, just, he de devised this plan and he instructed the midwives, when you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. But see, the midwives feared God, so they allowed the children to live. So we go on a couple more verses, and Pharaoh comes to even more drastic measures, and he gives this order in verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all of his people, throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. In other words, if the crocodiles don't eat them first, they will drown and die. So wouldn't you agree that this is a dangerous time to have a baby? It wasn't a good time or environment for Israelite babies to be born. To be born during this time meant a life of slavery. And if you were a boy, it meant that your life would be quickly snuffed out shortly after your birth. However, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 that we just read, this is a man, Amram, and a woman, Jochebed, from the tribe of Levi, got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son, Moses. Now, in the book of Exodus, the word of God emphasizes the faith of Jochebed, the faith of Moses' mother, who was, by the way, 130 years old when she gave birth to Moses. So that's incredible in and of itself. If you were to go over to the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, it says a lot more about the faith of Moses' parents. It says there, it was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given them an unusual child. And they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. Wow. They were not afraid to disobey the king's command. Now think about this. This was an act of faith for this couple to have a baby during this extremely dangerous time when Jewish babies were being killed. They already had two children. They had a daughter named Miriam and a son named Aaron who was three years older than Moses. Now, I come from a family um, background where each of the kids within, each of the parents, my aunts and uncles, each had a boy and a girl. And they decided after having a boy and girl, we got our, our boy, we got our girl, that's enough. We're not going to gamble any further. And that's it. Lisa and I kind of broke that mode. We had our boy and our girl, and then God put on our heart to have another child, and we had Caden. And um, here, it would have been easy for them to say, hey, we got our boy, 
we got our girl, that's it. But at 130 years old, she obeys God and she has another child here, Moses, at a dangerous time. But I want to emphasize here, I just want to pause and emphasize the fact that it was their obedience, it was their faith. They were godly parents, they came from a godly heritage, they were from the tribe of Levi. So Moses was born at the right time for a specific purpose. And I want to speak right now to the parents. I think it's very important to note here this morning, if you're going to be personally used of God, and if you're going to raise children that will be used of God, you will have to be different. You will have to be different from those around you. You will have to remain true to God when those around you are not being true to God. These are the kinds of parents that God can use to raise sons and daughters that he can also use to make a positive impact in our world. Josh and I, over the last couple days, had the opportunity to go to the University of Minnesota and do a campus tour. We spent a lot of time talking in the car to Minneapolis and back home from Minneapolis. We got on the subject of parenting and, and his peers and his friends and it was amazing, and I know this also from um, just times talking with my daughter, it's amazing how many kids who are friends of my son and daughter whose parents are divorced or absent from their lives. They're caught up on the fast track, on a career path, and they're either, um, either determined that they're too busy and they're absent or they are heavy-handed and have a hand of control because they don't have time for their kids. And I was just thinking about sitting in that orientation, reminding me of kindergarten orientation. And now I'm sitting here in college orientation, 12 years later, and thinking how my, the time has flown by. But so proud of my sons and my daughter. And knowing that We've done our best to instill godly values into their lives. And so I just want to say to you parents this morning who have your kids in church on a Sunday morning, who are taking time to, to lead them and guide them as best as you can, and you have them in the Word of God, and you're teaching them by example, can I just say to you this morning, you are blessed, and your kids are even more blessed because of your godly lifestyle and what you have modeled before them, and you will reap the fruit in their lives. So shout out to you this morning. To all of you, just as Moses was born for a reason, you were born for a reason as well. Not one of you were an accident. You know, I hear all the times, well, you know, Junior, he, he was an accident, or he was an oops baby. There's no such thing. You're not an accident. You may have been told that. You may have um, thought that. Your parents may not have planned you, but God planned you. He was not at all surprised by your birth. In fact, he expected it long before your parents even thought about you or conceived you. One of my favorite verses in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, it says, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart. Jeremiah 29, 11, that Robin just shared, for I know the plans that I have for you. Plans. God has plans and purposes specific purposes for our life. The Bible talks a lot about that over in Psalm 139, verses 
13 through 16 says this about how God knew, knew you and saw you in your mother's womb. It says this, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded, recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. God has a plan for your life. You are here for a purpose. Psalm 139, verses 17 and 18 says, How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. You cannot escape the Father's love for you. His thoughts towards you outnumber the grains of sand. You're always on God's mind. God has a plan for you. You were born at the right time. In other words, you matter to God. I read a story recently of a museum guide who would take his tour group into a darkened room and once inside he would shine a light on this big mass of string and color and what appeared to be utter chaos. And then he would ask the group, what do you think it is? And they would say, I don't know. It looks like it's just a bunch of mess. Um, it looks like just a bunch of just a bunch of color and a bunch of string. And then he would turn off the light and he would say, well, I want you to stand over here and watch. And they'd walk around to the other side of the room. And once on the other side of the room, he would turn the light back on and immediately it was apparent that the massive jumbled colored string seen moments ago was in fact a beautiful large tapestry from the backside. See, the real work had to be seen from a different perspective to take notice of what it really was and how beautiful it was. I came across this poem written by Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom was a Christian who um, rescued slaves during the Holocaust. A great woman of God. And she illustrates awesomely this idea of the tapestry. Listen to these words. It says, my life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Now till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly, will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver and the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. And that's the way, friends, that God works in each of our lives. We often look at our lives and we ask the questions why or how. Why am I here? How can this possibly make sense? And how could this possibly work out for good. Not because there's no reason behind what God is doing, because we're on the wrong side of the tapestry. We're on the wrong side of eternity. We see life from a lower human perspective, and we can't see what God sees from a divine, eternal perspective. 
He can see the order and he can see the pattern and he can see the plan and the reason. Again, God made you and I for a reason. But I want you to know something else, just as Matt shared earlier during communion. If we were born for a reason, then we were absolutely, absolutely born again for a reason. He not only made you, but he redeemed you by the precious blood of his son. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, or the last time we did communion, heaven went bankrupt to purchase your salvation. Never let the devil tell you. Never let the world tell you, you or yourself tell yourself that you don't have a purpose, that you don't have a reason. God made you for a reason, and you were born at the right time. So number one, God made you for a reason. And the second principle here is that God works to accomplish his plan for you. God is working even now in your life. Sometimes he works in a way that we can't see at all, but he's working and he's accomplishing something spectacular. Look at Exodus chapter 2 in the last um, part of verse 2 and, and 3. It says that she saw that he was a special baby. Other translations said that, saw that he was a proper child. I looked at that child and say, this is a special baby. No matter what anybody else would say, you would think that your child is special. But it says that they saw that he was a special, but it says that they saw that he was a special baby. I looked everywhere to try to find maybe what they could have saw. I read a lot of different things and just came down to the conclusion that when they looked upon Moses, somehow they knew that God had set aside their son for a specific time, for a specific purpose, and that God was going to use him in a special way. And we see, thousands of years later, just how special their child was. And it says in verse 4 that the baby sister then stood at a distance watching to see what would happen to them, him. And soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river and her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to go get it for her. When the princess opened it and she saw the baby... The little boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Now I'm perplexed here. Like, this baby can't make anything happen. And in truth, his mom can't really make anything happen either. This child is under a death sentence from Pharaoh. But God is still working. He's working every moment of the way. Think about what God is doing here. He brought Pharaoh's daughter to the edge of the Nile that day. Two hours later, two hours earlier, would have been a different story. But God providentially caused the little basket to catch her attention. She might not have noticed it otherwise. And somehow, the baby Moses happened to cry at exactly the right time to catch her attention. Wouldn't you agree with me that God was orchestrating this whole event? Notice what else the Lord did. He gave Miriam, Moses' sister, the wisdom to say to Pharaoh's daughter, in verse 7, should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Isn't that awesome? God kept Moses in touch with his family. 
God was keeping Moses in touch with his heritage. But then also notice what the Lord did. In his providence, he worked it out so that Pharaoh's daughter actually offered to pay Moses' mother to take care and nurse her own child. That's an even greater blessing for the family. So think about all that happened here. Can you see what God's doing? And can you imagine the relief that Jochebed must have felt as she finds out that not only has her baby been saved from death, but now he's being protected? She gets to take care of her son, and she gets paid for doing, doing it. Nothing could have been greater for her at that time. There's no coincidence in any of this. God's name isn't mentioned in any of these verses. You look at verses 4 through 9, and you will not find God's name mentioned there one single time. But God's hand is all over this event. And his hand is all over you and I's lives, even when we ask the question why or the question how. There was a mom who one day was out in the garden, and she was working in the garden, and inside the home was her little daughter, she came in from working out in the garden for several hours, leaving her child unattended inside the home. And she came in and she found her daughter sitting there reading the book. And she looked at her daughter and said, what have you been doing? And she said, oh, I've just been reading this book here. And she said, are you sure? And she said, what do you mean? And she walked over and she looked at the piano and she said, it looks like you've been playing the piano. And she walked into the kitchen and said, Looks like you made yourself a sandwich in the kitchen. And then she walks into her bedroom and she said, it looks like you've been laying in mom and dad's bed. And now it looks like you're reading the book. And she said, mom, how do you know all that? And she said, because when you were in the kitchen, you made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, didn't you? And there's jello on the piano keys. And there's, I mean, jelly on the piano keys and there's jelly on the kitchen counter and there's jelly on our bed and that book that you're holding there's jelly all over the back of it <laughs> so i know exactly where you've been and i was thinking about it you know that's just like our lives we look back upon our lives there's the fingerprints of god all over them aren't they you know one of my favorite quotes is that we we live our lives forward but we understand them backwards it's when we look back that we see the fingerprints of God and how he's orchestrated and how he's made sense and he's weaved the patterns of our life into a beautiful tapestry. It's hard going through those times when you don't understand why or how or how can God work for the good when I'm going through, but God's fingerprints are all over your life. Proverbs 16:9 says, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. The Lord determines our steps. There was a motto of soldiers back during the Revolutionary War that said this, trust in God, but keep your powder dry. In other words, place your life in the Lord's hands, but make sure you've done everything you need to do to be ready. Isn't that what Jochebed did? I mean, she didn't just aimlessly place Moses down there. She, she did her part, and we have to do our part too. She fashioned the basket. She made sure it was waterproof. She stationed Miriam there. 
But that little boy in the basket couldn't do anything. He couldn't, there wasn't a rudder in the basket. There wasn't a sail. He couldn't reach out with his little arm and paddle himself in a certain direction. It was the providence of God. Jochebed did everything that she could do, but God did the rest. Number three, God prepares you for your purpose. God is working in all of our lives, preparing us for what he wants to accomplish through us. Notice in um, chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, Later when the boy was older, older, his mom brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. Now this is the heartbreaking part of the whole story. But actually it's probably one of the most encouraging parts of the story too. Here's the heartbreak. It must have been difficult for Moses' real mom and real dad because in the eyes of Pharaoh's daughter, in the eyes of Pharaoh's family, in the eyes of all of Egypt, Jochebed was just the nurse. Amram was just the nurse's husband. We don't know what all Moses knew at this time, but that's all that Pharaoh's daughter knew. And so the time came when Moses' mother had to take her baby boy and give him to Pharaoh's daughter. There's no doubt that Moses, as he learned to talk, he called Pharaoh's daughter mom. Jochebed and Amram watched as Moses became the son of another woman with a completely different set of virtues. And he became one of them. He dressed like an Egyptian. He talked like an Egyptian. He even walked like an Egyptian. Come on. Lisa said, don't say that. The only people who are going to laugh are those that are 40 and above. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but listen, God was using this. God was using this. If you look over in um, Acts 7, there's actually a twin passage in the New Testament to Exodus 2. Here in Acts 7, Stephen is preaching his great sermon on the whole history of God's people in Israel. And as he talks about that, he elaborates on Moses' childhood in verses 20 through 22 of chapter 7 of Acts. It says, At that time, Moses was born, a beautiful child in God's eyes. His parents cared for him at home for three months. When they had to abandon him, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own son. Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in both speech and action. One commentator summarizes Moses' training there by writing this about it. It says, Moses began to learn the language of the Egyptians at the temple. He also would have plunged into the sciences, medicine, astronomy, chemistry, theology, philosophy, and law. He almost certainly took the Egyptians' equivalent of ROTC, studying the battles and combat tactics and foes of that nation's proud military history. On top of that, he would have dabbled in the arts, sculpture, music, and painting. The whole world of Egyptian literature was open to him. The adopted son of the prince found himself immersed in Egyptian learning. It became his life. He actually was able to attend what would be equivalent to um, like an Ivy League school today, the Temple of the Sun. So look at all these things. God was preparing him even now to deliver his people, the Israelite children, out of bondage into the wilderness and up to the promised land. Even then, God was orchestrating his life, providentially working in his life. I want to um, close with this last principle here. 
in the birth and the life of Moses. It says, God knows when and where to use you. Now, this is important because as we're going to read the end of the story of Moses this morning, we're going to end on a note of failure. Because here's what happened. Up until now, up until this time, that Moses was taken to Pharaoh's daughter's house and trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians up to them, God had been working mightily to direct Moses' life. But then something happened. Moses said, Lord, just like Robin shared in her testimony, he said, Lord, let me take the wheel. Let me drive the car for a moment. And he messed things up because he was disobedient to God. Notice here in verse 11 of chapter 2 in Exodus, it says, Many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. Now, there was enough from his past and his heritage in identifying where he really came from and who his people really were that caused him to have a compassionate heart here. And so when he saw one of his people, a Hebrew man being beaten by an Egyptian out of compassion and his care, he had a heart that burned with justice and with righteousness and he became angry about what was happening. And in verses 12 through 15 it says, after looking, and I want you to note this next part, in all directions to make sure no one was watching. Moses killed the Egyptian and hid his body in the sand. The next day, when Moses went out to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting each other. Now, these were two of his people in, in a conflict fighting each other. Moses said to the one who had started the fight, the man replied, who, I mean, Moses said to the one who had started, why are you beating up your friend, Moses said to the one who had started the fight. And the man replied, who appointed you to be our prince and judge? Are you going to kill me just as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid, thinking, everybody knows what I did. And sure enough, Pharaoh, Pharaoh heard what had happened, and he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. When Moses arrived in Midian, Midian he sat down by the side of a well. Now Moses' life can be broken up into three 40-year time periods, because he lived to be 120 so we're talking about the first 40 years, years here up until he's in the wilderness. And I'm not going to talk about the plagues and um, the different um, items that happened at this time. And it goes into the wilderness wanderings and how God works in his life and then brings him out of the wilderness um, to lead his, his children across the Red Sea and, and on to the edge of the promised land. But up until this point, God had worked to direct him. He providentially put Moses right where he wanted to be, but then Moses decided to take control. Did you notice there that he looked to the right and to the left to see that no one was looking, but one place that he did not look was up. See, he thought that it was his time, that he was going to deliver his people. And God said, not yet. You're not ready yet. You're not ready yet. See, there are times in our lives when we come to the realization, like Moses, 
that we're not, re we're not leading, we're just taking a walk because nobody's following us. And I want to remind you of this point. God knows where and when to use you. And one of the things that we must not ever do is to get ahead of God, right? We need to wait on God and say, God, here I am, ready to be used by you. And always let the Lord have control of the wheel. We don't want our agenda, we want his. So we listen to his word and we watch for open doors in life's circumstances and we pray for his will to be done in our lives and we try our best never to get ahead of him. It brings me back to um, my Bible college class called Pentateuch. It was at 7 o'clock in the morning. A lot of times we would go to bed with the clothes that we were going to wear in the morning because it was so early so we could just roll out of bed and go to class and not even have to take time to get dressed. We'd sit in class, and um, Dr. Don Meyer, the vice president of our Bible college, taught the class, and he would always say this quote. He'd always look, up, look around the chapel, and all of us sitting there with our three-by-five note cards ready to write down his wisdom. And he would say this over and over. He repeated it over and over. The cream always rises to the top. The cream will always rise to the top. In other words, true leaders will always rise to the top. They can never be held down. If you truly have the leadership abilities that God has given you and a love for God and God's will in his timing, in his providence, he will always put you exactly where you need to be. And so there in the desert of Midian, Moses stopped striving and he started waiting on God and then God was ready to use him. Will you stand with me this morning? I've lived and I've breathed this passage of scripture for the last few weeks. Just excited about the thought that there's not one person here, there's not one person born that God didn't have on his mind, that didn't have here to be born at the right time for the right reason, for the right purpose. And just thinking back over my life and reflecting, and I, I just encourage you to do the same. This afternoon, just pause somewhere and get quiet and think back over your life and look back over your life. And look for the fingerprints of God on your life. Did Moses mess up? Did he take control? Yes. Do we mess up? Do we sometimes try to take control? Yes. But if we stop striving and we say, okay, God, it's yours. I understand. I blew it. I messed up. But God, take the wheel again. God will come through for you and fulfill his promise and his purpose just like he did in Moses' life. So what about you this morning? Is God ready to use you? Are you ready for God to use you? Have you placed yourself in the right place so that God can do what he wants to do through you? You were made for a purpose. God has a plan for you. He's working to fulfill that plan, but we need to let him decide when and where he wants to use us. Think about that. Catherine said, how, how long has Metro Believers Church been here? 16 years we celebrate in April. 
God providentially worked out for our lead pastor and his wife to come and plant this church. God put in place the team to come alongside them. And here we are gathered together on a Sunday morning in Madison, Wisconsin. Some of you like me said, I would never go to Madison. I'd never live in Madison. Here I am. There's freaks in Madison. And I'm one of them. I'm a pastor. I went to Bible college. Guess what? I got a cafe for you to operate and own. Why, God? How can you work this out? Did I mess up somewhere? Just trust me. Just give me the wheel. Sit back. Enjoy the ride. Dad, I like Minnesota. Can't wait to move there. Son, God's had you where you've been for the last 12 years for a reason, for a purpose. The relationships you've built, the opportunities that you've had, the people that you rub shoulders with and you've networked with, God's going to use it all in your future. And he's going to do the same for you and you and you and you. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, I thank you that as there was no rudder, there was no sail on that little basket in the Nile River. There's no rudder, no sail, no direction. But yet, Lord, you guide us and you direct us to right where we need to be at the right time for the right purposes. And you have a plan for each of our lives here this morning, Lord. We were born at the right time. We were born for a reason. But as I mentioned, Lord, we were born again for a reason. So, Father, I pray that there be anyone in this room this morning who is not yet a child of yours, Lord, not given their life to you or asked you to be the leader of their life, Father. I pray that they would reach out to you right now, Jesus, and say, Lord, come into my life. Be the leader of my life. Take control of the wheel. Father, I pray that right now that there be several who are be praying that, Lord. Here's my life, Lord. Take my life. I want you to be my leader and my guide. And we thank you this morning, Lord, that you have a plan and you have a purpose for each of our lives. And we're sorry, Lord, for the times that we forget about that plan or how you can work even the bad things for good. And Lord, how we take the wheel out of your hands. But Lord, we, in our, we, we stop striving this morning. We, we, we loosen our control to you this morning. We submit to you. And Lord, we ask you to take the wheel. And Lord, I pray that you would solidify if there be anyone here this morning with questions of why they are where they are or why they're doing what they're doing, Lord. And in their mind, it seems so far from what your call or your purpose is for their life. I pray that you remind them, Lord, that you, you have them right where they are and that you can use even this for your glory. For your glory. Thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just begin to move and, and speak and comfort and draw people. In Jesus' name. Let's worship the Lord. I want to invite the pastoral team as they're on both sides of the auditorium. If God is speaking to you right now, if you find yourself in this... If you want to know more about Life Lessons, check us out online at metrobelievers.com 
or write to us at Metro Believers Church, P.O. Box 45702, Madison, Wisconsin 53744.